0: Good morning. As I was trying to think about the theological tension that is in the passage that we're going to cover today, especially as it gets coupled with what leads right into it, I, I tried to think of an image, something that I could show you that might... You might be able to keep with you so i I thought of a couple so let me toss them up for you first of all i thought about a coin and how a coin has a heads and a tails two different sides the two sides are different from each other you know you play the game let's flip heads tails right they're different but they have to work together you have to have a heads and a tails to have a coin and Holiness and grace can seem to be opposite, but maybe they're just two different sides of the same coin. They definitely work together. Or maybe a seesaw, right? Have you ever, don't name any names or anything, but have you ever sat on a seesaw with someone who's a little bit heavier than you? It's not a comfortable experience. You, you need to balance things out. And as we think about both holiness and grace, where are you going to give more weight to? Because they're both true of God. Well, I want to invite your attention today to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 to 29, a passage that balances holiness and grace. Like two sides of the same coin, it stresses that we respond to one God who is both holy and gracious. So will you stand with me? Let's stand together as we read God's word this morning. Hebrews 12, 25 says, see to it, You do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things. So that what cannot shaken, cannot be shaken, may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken... Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now we often set the context of passages before we dive into them and usually we're talking about the immediate context, what leads right into it. We will get that We will get to that in a minute. I wanna set this passage in a larger context first, in the context of the book of Hebrews as a whole. As Nathan mentioned earlier during our musical worship uh, part of this service, we have been covering Hebrews for many months. And this passage today, Hebrews 12, 25, is the last of five warning passages that appear in the book. That's why this sermon is titled, The Last One. Hebrews goes back and forth. There's teaching, there's instruction, and then that's followed by a warning, and it happens over and over, and you can see in chapter two, one to four, in chapter three, seven to four, 13, in chapter five, uh, 11 to six, 12, in 10, 19 to 39, and then, really the longer paragraph, 12, 14 to 29, uh, that our verses are a part of. So just a quick reminder, we won't read all those passages, but a snippet from each one. Hebrews 2 verse 1, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Hebrews 5, 11 to six twelve has this warning that starts with verse 4, uh, or we'll read verse 4. It is impossible for those who have been uh, once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared uh, in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, And who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Hebrews 10 verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. And then we come to this one in chapter 12 verses 14 to 29. That's the larger context, five major warnings, and all of them relate in some way to people, the original audience, who had put their faith in Jesus Christ. They had professed faith in Jesus Christ, but they were being tempted. They were Jewish, and they were tempted to turn back and to turn completely away from Jesus, to to reject him and go back to the former ways and... Over and over and over again, we get warned about that in reading this letter. Now, the immediate context, we're reading verses 25 to 29 today. Uh, Last week, we covered verses 18 to 24. And so, the immediate context of 12, 25 to 29 is after reminding Christians of the amazing ways that we can now approach God that was verses 22 and 24. This passage shows us appropriate ways to respond to him. So let me put these two mountains up. We covered this last week. If you were here, if you weren't, this will really set you up well for the message today. There are two different ways of viewing a relationship with God. In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, that was pictured by Mount Sinai. That's where God gave the law through Moses. And that was verses 18 to 21. Then in the new covenant, that was pictured, that's where we live today in the era after Jesus Christ lived, died, was buried and rose again. It's the new covenant, it's Mount Zion. So what was the old covenant like? Well, you, he says, you've not come to a mountain that can be touched and is burning with fire. This was the old this is what happened darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken of them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. That was the old covenant. That's not where we are. Thank God that's not where we are. We're in the new covenant. Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood spoke judgment and condemnation. Jesus' blood speaks forgiveness. And so we summarize two different ways of approaching God. In the old covenant, it was impersonal. The emphasis was on separation and fear. Now, the emphasis in the new covenant is on joy. It's a joyful assembly, it is, on, it is personal, it is relational. We have access to God and we have forgiveness. So right after saying that, right after painting this amazing contrast that we don't live in the old covenant anymore, now we live in a new covenant, the question comes, Well, what should we do? how should we respond to that and that's what verses 25 to 29 are about they show us how we respond to this god of the new covenant and there are two ways to respond there are two commands in this passage two and only two two main verbs two imperatives The second one comes in verse 28, and we'll get to that in a few minutes, but the first one starts out right here in verse 25, and it's, it's take care, (laughs) take care that you do not reject the one who is speaking to you. Let's read it again. Verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Now, who is the one that speaks? Who is the author saying, don't refuse the one that speaks? Well, it's God, right? In the Old Testament, from the mountain, God was speaking, and it was powerful, and there was smoke, and they had to stay away from the mountain, and and they were warned, that you will be judged. You will be blessed if you obey these commands. You will be judged if you don't. And look what he says to us today. There's this comparison. Are you gonna receive God? Are you gonna receive his word through Jesus Christ? Are you gonna reject it? See to it that you don't refuse the one who speaks. If they did not escape, And the they is the people in the Old Testament. If they did not escape when they refused him who spoke to them from earth, now think about this lesser to greater. How much less will we, if we turn away, from him who warns us from heaven? It's a comparison. If this brought judgment, how much more would it be for us today. Verse 26. We have even more responsibility. It's it's the same person speaking. It's the same voice, it's the same God. Between old and new testament it's just a different form. Verse 26. At that time his voice shook the earth. Remember the earthquake? that was there at Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So at Mount Sinai, when the law was given, there was an earthquake. God's voice was so powerful, and it is so powerful that it actually shook the earth. Something extraordinary was happening. That's what... God was saying to them, this this is not normal, right? It's like Moses when he went up on the mountain and met God and he saw this bush and the bush was burning, right? Take take your shoes off, Moses, because this is holy ground. This isn't ordinary. And I want to tell you, when we stand before the word of God, when we read it, when we preach it, when we hear it, when we stand in God's presence and worship, there's nothing ordinary about it. We can't take it for granted. We can't say, oh, this is just what we do. We can't be casual about it. We have to take care to know that the person that's speaking to us is is not the pastor, it's God because it's true to God's word. It's coming from God. Make sure you don't refuse the one that's speaking to you from heaven because he shook the earth in the Old Testament, but now he's saying, I'm going to shake more than the earth. <laughs> I'm going to shake the heavens. Now, what he's doing here, he's quoting an Old Testament prophet, the prophet Haggai. Haggai chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and that is, and what is desired by all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. This prophecy relates to the end times. To the time, the concluding events of this age when Christ returns, he is going to fill his house with glory. He promises that he's going to come and it's going to involve a lot of upheaval, a lot of shaking. Matthew chapter 24 verse 29 talks about the eschatological, the end times. It says, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's what this is referring to. The second coming of Christ. And it is going to be spectacular. He's going to shake the heavens, and the earth. Now, back in Hebrews 12, verse 27, the writer comments and explains on what he has just said. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Now, think about it. Everything in the world, everything in the universe can either be shaken or not. (laughs) What can be shaken? Everything that's created. Everything you can see. Every mountain, every river, every desert, every tree, every animal, every aspect of the material creation it's it's all created it can be shaken and it's temporary everything that we see we live you know the world's been here before we got here and the world's going to be here after we're gone right and we just tend to think that it's it's eternal but the material universe as we see it and know it now is not eternal it can be shaken it's temporary and what's going to (laughs) happen it's going to be removed the things that can be shaken are going to be removed that is created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain so let me ask you a question do you think your house is permanent do you think your money is permanent do you think your 401k is permanent do you think That your friendships are permanent? Do you think the nations of this world are permanent? Do you think your job is permanent? All of that can be shaken. All of it is created by God. But there's one thing that is not temporary. There is one thing that is permanent, and it's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is forever And so here's what he's saying by quoting this Old Testament prophecy that yes, the earth shook when I gave the law at Mount Sinai, but one day the the heaven, not only the earth, but the heavens are gonna shake. There's gonna be these, these cataclysmic events. Christ is gonna return and all the created things are gonna disappear and what is going to remain is God's kingdom. The permanent thing in life that's what's going to remain Isaiah prophesied about this in chapter 65 verse 17 see I will create new heavens and a new earth the former things will not be remembered nor will they come to mind think about 2nd Peter chapter 3 verse 10 but the day of the Lord will come like a thief The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. At the end of the age, the material universe, the world as we know it will pass away and the only thing that will be left is the kingdom of God. That's why he says, Be careful. (laughs) Take care. This, this This is a very, very, very serious person speaking to you. This is God. Listen to him, listen to his word, obey his word. Don't turn away from him or turn away from his word. Take care that you don't reject him. And that leads us to the second response that the passage calls us to have, and that is to be thankful. To be thankful for the kingdom God is giving you so you can worship him acceptably with reverence and fear. Verse 28, Therefore, Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Allow that statement to sink in for a minute. We are receiving a kingdom. That cannot be shaken think about it can anybody else can anything else promise you that that it's never gonna be shaken that it's never gonna go bad that it's never gonna fail that it's never gonna have to go see the doctor because it's not working correctly we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken now, in a kingdom, there's a king, right? The king rules and the king has subjects. And in this case, God is the king. He's the one that is the ruler of the universe. And we are his subjects, but He not only we're not only his, his subjects that obey him, he's giving us the kingdom. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's holy people will receive the kingdom. So for instance, Daniel 7:18, the holy people of the most high will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. And Jesus said to his disciples at the last supper in Luke 22, "I confer on you a kingdom just as my Father conferred one on me." So that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Revelation chapter 5 verses 9 and 10 records the song of the creatures all around the throne. They're saying to Jesus, they're saying to the Lamb of God, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. If you're a Christian, you're receiving the kingdom. I have good news for you this morning. You are receiving the kingdom of God. Look what verse 28, how it continues. It's a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We've been alluding to this Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. And God told his people back then even that if they fully obeyed him, they would be his treasured possession and they would be for him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was Exodus 19, five and six. And of course they said, yes, we'll obey. We'll do everything God tells us to. And do you know how that turned out? (laughs) They, They disobeyed. And so that kingdom was temporary for them. But it's so different for us in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's permanent. It's it's eternal. And having access to the kingdom of God is a privilege that's greater than anything you could ever imagine in earth. It's better than any job you could have, any connection you could have with a famous person, any amount of money that you could have. You have access to the kingdom of God if you're a Christian. Now, I mentioned earlier that there were only two commands here in this passage. There were only two main verbs. One of them was verse 25, take care, be careful. And the second one is here in verse 28, and it is let us be thankful So we take care that we listen to God and we're thankful. Let us be thankful. Gratitude is an important part of worship. It always is. It always is. It's almost like gratitude and worship are heads and tails of the same coin. And it's interesting, we're coming into this Thanksgiving season and we give thanks to God. And as Corey mentioned, next Sunday in, in our service, we, we change it up and we, we give people a chance to express that gratitude for God's many, many mercies. And that's, that's always appropriate. It's especially appropriate at Thanksgiving to, to give that kind of thanks. But what we're giving thanks for here, in context, the primary thing that we're giving thanks for in Hebrews 12 is because God has given us a kingdom. God is making us a part of his kingdom, and it's a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The older we get, the more we realize that everything changes. Life changes, cities change, people change, relationships change, everything changes, but God's kingdom can't be shaken. And he's saying, be thankful for that. So now after he says, be thankful, the text tells us in the rest of the verse what that thanksgiving results in or what kind of thanksgiving is being envisioned. So we'll take an arrow and we'll, we'll draw the arrow from be thankful to the next phrase, which is, and so worship God acceptably. So it's not like being thankful is one thing and then worshiping is one thing, but he's saying, be thankful. If you realize the kingdom that God is letting you be a part of and that you're receiving, that thrusts you into worship, that leads you into worship. You become a worshiper. You can worship God acceptably. What does that look like? Well, it's with reverence and awe. That's how we worship God acceptably, with reverence and awe. It's interesting, our, our community group, um, usually our, the topics we cover are, we follow along with what's going on uh, in, in uh, what the church is preaching and teaching. Different community groups, some others do it, some do study different things, but in ours, we just go along with it. Friday night, we were talking about this passage, and I asked the question, why is it hard to be reverent? (laughs) What is it about life and our society that makes it hard to be reverent? And there were some great answers, there's some great issues. I mean, society itself is so irreverent. <laughs> and the, the culture and the values of the world and our busyness makes it hard to be reverent. And our sin and temptation makes it hard and materialism makes it hard and there's so many makes it hard. And somebody said, one thing that makes it hard for me is because it's harder when, I, when it's not tangible, when I can't see God right? So, so think about this. If you were in the Old Testament at the mountain and you saw the smoke and the fire, you, it would be a little bit easier to be reverent probably, right? So like in the morning you wake up and you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read my Bible. I'm going to study my Bible today. And you start walking towards your Bible and you see some smoke come around the edge of the Bible. You might go, wow, this is a very serious book I'm getting ready to pick up, Right? Or you drive into church this morning, you come into the parking lot and you, you, you hear the earth, you feel the earth kind of shaking a little bit. Well, what's that? It's like, we're getting ready to go worship. It would be easier, right? Because we're so, I don't know what the word is, but as people, we, the things that are tangible are easier for us to grasp. But you know what? The truth is, God is God and God is here. And we need to worship with Him. Reverence and awe. You know, I love the church being the church as a whole, the church of Jesus Christ. Every church, no matter we we have small differences on this and that, but the true church that preach Jesus Christ and the Bible. And some worship in very formal fashions and some worship in informal fashions. And we talked about that too. Sometimes when it comes to corporate worship, those that worship in a more formal sense. Sometimes it's easier to sense the reverence in places like that, but miss out on the personal nature. And in churches like ours where we don't have a high liturgy and we're more informal, yes, our strength might be personal, but we need to make sure that we are reverent and we worship God with awe. And that's what acceptable worship is. Why? Why are we called to do that? Well, verse 29 tells us why. For our God is a consuming fire. How's that for an image? Our God is a consuming fire. Moses spoke these words to the Israelites in the Old Testament when he was warning them about serving idols. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Verse 23, be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Yes, in the new covenant, we celebrate God with joy. We're thankful for the welcome that he gives us. It's a joyful assembly We thank God for His grace and we celebrate in that way. But we also have to celebrate Him and worship Him with reverence and with awe. Thomas Lee warns, when Jesus returns in glory, the fire of God's holiness will consume all that is false and evil. Those with wickedness will be consumed by the fire of this judgment. Those who profess faith in Christ cannot expect mercy if they willfully turn from Jesus back to sin, disobedience, the law, or a false God. We must show the reality of our confession by our obedience and worship. So, this is this is what we've looked at. (laughs) This is how we respond to the God of the new covenant. Take care that you don't reject the one that's speaking and be thankful for the kingdom that God has given you. And that's why I summarize God's word this way. That phrase, that part of the sentence that's up there, because God has now allowed us to approach him with joy, that's Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, that Leads right into our passage. Because that is true, we need to be both careful and thankful. We need to be both careful and thankful. Let me give you a couple of notes and then we'll be through. First of all, this passage contains a serious warning. The warning is don't reject Christ and his words. The original audience professed faith in Christ, but they were tempted to turn back. They were tempted to abandon the faith. And it's applicable to us today. Whether, it, whether or not, if you've, for instance, if, if you've professed faith in Christ and you're tempted to totally turn your back on Him, or if you've never professed faith in Christ and you're still tempted to reject Him and turn away from Him, th- this is a serious warning to heed. If you surrender to Him, He will show you grace. But if you reject him, judgment from a God who is a consuming fire waits. Secondly, this passage teaches both grace and judgment. It's, It's a marvelous picture in verses 22 to 24 of festivity and joy and forgiveness. But that doesn't mean that God turns his back and says, oh, well, live however you want to live. It doesn't matter what people do. It does matter what people do. He's a God of grace, and we can we can receive his grace, but there will be no joy if we reject him and his grace. There will only be judgment. And then finally, this passage motivates us to live for eternity. We've talked about what's permanent and what's not. Our relationships are not permanent. Our successes and failures in this life are not permanent. All the joys and the wonderful things that we like about life on an earthly plane are not permanent, as well as all of the trials and tribulations and difficulties, they are not permanent either. Your your portfolio, your investment, your, your money, your house or houses or lands, none of that is permanent. The kingdom of God is what's permanent. That's why we should hear and obey what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Or what Paul said in Colossians 3, since you have been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. Living for now is so short sighted. Living for fun or friends or school or relationship or achievements or acquisition or anything else other than God is the wrong choice. So I started this morning, I started the sermon with two images, right? The coin and the seesaw. And I want to give you one more to take home with you. Okay. A telescope. John Piper wrote an article in which he compared the way a telescope and a microscope magnify things. He said the microscope magnifies things, right? You put something under the microscope and you make it look bigger than it really is. That's what a microscope does. But he said a telescope makes a big thing begin to look as big as it really is <laughs> right that's what we're we're just looking out at something that's big and we're trying to see it for what it really is and he says we're not called to be microscopes we're called to be telescopes christians are not called to be con men who magnify their product out of all out of proportion to reality, when they know the competitor's product is far superior, there is nothing and nobody superior to God. And so the calling of those who love God is to make his greatness begin to look as great as it really is. The whole duty of the Christian can be summed up in this, Feel, think, and act in a way that will make God look as great as he really is. Be a telescope for the world of the infinite starry wealth of the glory of God. And hopefully, Hebrews twelve twenty-five to 29 will help you do that. Because God has now allowed us To approach him with joy, we need to be both careful and thankful. Let's bow our heads, please.